Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Humans Excess Manchester with me, Clint Boone. Every week we celebrate the spirit of Manchester by speaking to somebody who's helped shape the city. This week I'm joined by a legendary guitarist and founder of one of the most influential bands the world has ever seen, Mr Johnny Marr. Johnny talks about how the punk revolution of 1976 and in particular the Buzzcocks inspired him to pursue his dreams. And I was just like, oh, okay, Mancunian bands can do it. That was just amazing for me. And he describes the magical moment where he met Morrissey for the first time. Knocked on the door and his sister came knocking on the door and, and then he, he came down and then um, and then I just went <laughs> band amazing guitarist. <laughs> Amazingly, he just said come in. Gives me great pleasure, immense pleasure, to welcome to Human Sexus Manchester, an old friend of mine who carries with him probably the most incredible CV of any guest on the podcast so far uh, in terms of musicians and uh, quite simply one of the greatest guitarist for our lifetime and uh, in recent years uh, an amazing frontman and all-round top rock star Johnny Ma. Hiya Clint. How are you? Thanks very much for that. <laughs> I always like to do a nice introduction. Yeah. And yeah. then the, the rest of it gets a bit cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can go home now. Thanks very much. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you. You're looking good as always. 
feel all right. You know, it's good to sort of getting, um, I'm, I'm sort of getting back to work a little bit after having all of a month off, I think, you know. So we're touring up until end of last year and now I'm sort of, you know, back in rehearsals and cracking the whip and plugging things into things and, you know, getting ready to go out. It isn't a real, I don't feel, it's not a job. And as ever looking good, <laughs> I want to talk about your lifestyle as well because you, yeah. you, you've been clean living for many years and we'll talk about that later on. Uh, we're going to talk about some aspects sure. of your career, obviously. We're going to talk about Manchester, so that's the main reason we're here to do this. But let's start the beginning of your story. Tell us where and when you were born. I believe it was Hardwick, wasn't it? Yeah, my parents came over uh, in the early 60s from Kildare Island, both my mum and dad. They were married very young, uh, and I think my mum was 17 when I was born, 17, 18. So I was born in 1963 in Hardwick, and... Um, I, mean, I was actually born in Longsight, and then, but I grew up in Ardwick, a couple of streets away from Manchester Apollo, uh, just where the, the, the little park is, higher Ardwick. And um, that was amazing. And as the oldest, I've got a sister who's 11 months younger and then a, a, a younger brother who came along nine years later. And it, I was surrounded by a migration of very young and very numerous, a massive extended uh, Irish family. Yeah. So, uh, in short, all of these, my mother's from a family of 14, my dad's from a family of five, and their brothers and sisters all migrated, pretty much all of them migrated over to Manchester at the same time. So, <laughs> the, the, the Mars and the Doyles, this community, lived within a few streets and around the Longsite and Ardwick area. And I was one of the very first born, so I had like, just loads of little cousins and r- running around. And I feel like I actually don't really remember hearing a, a Mancunian accent from a child or an English accent from a kid until I was seven or eight. I mean, obviously I went to school with, you know, English kids, but um, it was just Ireland, Island, Island. It's like it a mini, mini island, yeah. But the, with that came um, an absolute massive obsession with music and records. And with them, because they were young, sometimes people get the impression that it was tin whistles and and you know fiddles and all of that but because my parents were young they were into rock and roll music and the pop music of the day and the thing about Manchester was that they absolutely adored arriving in Manchester they loved Manchester and they still do so I was brought up with a a real super almost over you know super appreciation in Manchester that my Mancunian mates who parents who would and grandparents who'd gone through the war almost took for granted. So me and my sister were brought up with this uber appreciation of Manchester because they saw it as this great city that gave them opportunity, gave them work. Interestingly enough, was very, very welcoming to immigrants, whether it was from West Indian and Caribbean, Irish, Polish, European, you know, where I lived in Ardu, it was very culturally diverse. And um, yeah, so I grew up in that kind of um, real melting pot of uh, mostly Irish, but obviously very, very working class and, and, you know, pretty skint, you know. It sounds like St. Patrick's Day every day. Was it like that? Yeah, and particularly <laughs> most nights as well. Uh, but that's where I got on my musical, my love of music from, from being a real little kid, seeing, really watching this behaviour of these adults who I'd never seen anyone play a song, a record. 15 times that I was watching my mother do that but watching that enthusiasm and that wonder when my mum was playing an Everly Brothers record it stuck with me you know mm-hmm. I don't know whether you're like that but I do remember that vividly my mum and dad had the old um, radio or stereogram as it was called back then 
And I remember the effect that the records they played had on them as good. Yeah, so, you know yeah I mean? exactly. Yeah. They put Tom Jones on it, they'd be sing along and dancing in Shirley Bassey and then something by the, the Beatles or whatever in there. But I just remember being mesmerised by, not just by the music I was hearing, but the effect it had on the parents there and the, the family around me. What did your mum and dad do for work? My dad laid gas pipes, you know, in the roads. So he'd get out with his mates out of a van around, everywhere around, a lot around Merseyside, actually. You'd get in the van at half five, six o'clock in the morning and he'd drive over to Liverpool, which he loved. And then, you know, a place like around the, all around the Greater Manchester area. Him and his usually Irish mates would get out of the van and load a load of stuff on the road and then they'd dig it down like four or five feet and put gas pipes in and he did that every day he could we couldn't we couldn't stop him when it come to him retiring we had to force him to stop work <laughs> kept digging holes in garden because they, yeah. <laughs> i mean they do say that about the irish though don't they that the um the 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 english work to live and the irish live to work so that's what he did and my mum did all kinds of different jobs when i was little she did some sort of cleaning work and uh, worked in a bar yeah she did that both when we were, all, were working my mum did a couple of different jobs at the same time and uh, later on in my life, she started working for Hertz Rent-A-Car and Barclays Bank and stuff like that. Um, she did more sort of clerical work. But when I was young, she cleaned rich people's, or more you know, middle-class people's houses. So I grew up with a very, very strong work ethic, particularly as I'm the oldest. It didn't ever occur to me that you would loaf about. Same here. I think that's most working-class kids of our generation were like that. We're just watching mum and dad graft the bollocks off year after year. Yeah. I think that's what still is instilled in us uh, even today, isn't it? And that went into me, you know. So when I got a little, when I got older, it was made very, very clear to me in my early teenage years because the dole was still a thing then. It was an option, but dole and me living in their house was not an option. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? That's how it was, it's, isn't it? So I, I always had this sort of looming threat hanging over me that I've heard you know, if I did leave school early, which I did, I'd better get a job. Yeah. <laughs> At what point did you start playing guitar? I know you moved to Withenshaw around, you were 10 yeah. years old, roughly. Yeah. And you were so, already playing guitar by then, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, I got my first guitar when I was five, which was a little toy thing, just around off High Radwick. And I've no idea, and no one knows why I was so obsessed with getting this little toy, but I was absolutely adamant that I had to get it, and I would stand outside the window, like, you know, just mesmerised by this little toy till my mother bought it, this little wooden thing, and I carried that around. Then I started playing actual properly when I was, I got an acoustic guitar when I was eight, and I could hold down chords on that, and, you know, you could make music on that. So I started playing when I was eight, eight really, yeah, because you couldn't stop me once I got a guitar. It was, to me, it wasn't practice, it was, it was fun, you know. So mm. I started when I was eight, and then I started getting you know, good enough about 18 months later, I think, or a year later, something like that. So I've, I've been playing quite a long time, yeah. So by the time you got to Withenshaw, you were a bit exotic. You had longer, you had a guitar, you were only 10 and you knew how to play guitar. <laughs> and then people started there. Uh, well, the truth of it, actually... around with you. Yeah, yeah, well, funny enough, in Ardwick, it, it was rough, you know, in the late 60s. It, it was pretty edgy. I had a great, a great childhood because it was exciting. Uh, I wasn't miserable. Living so close to the city centre, I mean, I've always called town, town. You know, I, I think I used to make that the measure of a Mancunian. You <laughs> yeah. know, if you refer to town as Manchester, I think you're not a Mancunian. But uh, no, because it was literally, you know, f from the Apollo, so it was 10, ten minutes walk. That, so that was our local shops pretty much, or Stockport Road. So, you know, my childhood was, I was in town all the time uh, with my mummy, you know, being dragged around. Or then when I was old enough to just go in there all the time on my own. So I've had this real close relationship with the city centre all my life. 
And then when we moved, we were part of that relocation drive in the uh, 1973, where lots of people got moved from Mossside and Longsight and in our case, Hardwick. And we, we got moved out to Widdenshaw. And when I moved out to Widdenshaw, you know, I have said it before, but it was like I'd moved to Beverly Hills, you know. I've never yeah. seen so many trees in my life, you know. But to answer your question, I was kind of considered slightly exotic because no one really knew the real score because I, up until that point, I was very, very, very quiet, believe it or not. Right. And then so when, I, when me and my sister landed in Widdenshaw and I went to a new primary school, because I'd played guitar and I turned up there not in a school uniform. Everyone else was in uniform. We, I think my mum kind of missed the memo. Right? <laughs> so I turned up in, people from the 70s will remember this. So first, me and my sister turned up more appropriate for a disco, really. So I walked in there with like, you know, feather cut and, and what was called a star jumper because right, yeah. it was a jumper with stars on, believe yeah. it or not. Oxford bags and all of that. I'm very, very super into clothes. I didn't go around telling people I, I played the guitar, but it just sort of came out that I played the guitar and a teacher asked me to bring my guitar in and stuff. So they didn't know that I was very, very uh, meek. So in a way, I invented myself from what was being projected at me. People that assumed I was much more confident and groovy than I was. And I thought, all right, well, I'll just pretend to be that. Then I, And yeah, exotic, because I, me and my sister had come from the inner city and I could play the guitar. So I just went with that and kind of almost reinvented myself, really. It's that classic thing that people do when they go to university, isn't it? One of the spin-offs now of social media my manager was telling me this. He's quite involved in behind the scenes in a few schools and colleges. And seeing as you brought this up, what's happening now because of social media is the opposite of what you just described. Because people, when they arrive in at different schools and universities and jobs and everything, they have already been exposed, if you like, on social media. So if someone's gone through a phase where, let's say, they were a goth or they were experimenting with the sexuality or they, they want to be a poet or what, your history follows you around now. And anyway, what my manager was telling me was that it was an interesting phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon, whereby people are, are less likely to stick the, stick the head above the parapet. That there's a theory that it is creating a culture of conformity where everybody wants to look alike. Everyone is afraid to stick the neck out. How did you go on at school? Did you do all right academically? Or were you not? Yeah, I did okay. I was bright enough, you know. I mean, my background was extremely Catholic. Uh, did you used to get... Um the strap and all that, like I did. Did, did you <laughs> get the strap too? Oh, were, my arse was red constantly, getting the plinths all over my arse and my, my hands were yeah. always getting it. No, it was pretty brutal. I did, <laughs> I did. No, I, I went through all of that. Back then, as you, some of your more vintage listeners will know, that was the eleven plus, and to get into that was a really big deal. Get whether you whether you're going to go to a grammar school or a secondary mm. school. Now the irony is that I wanted to go to a secondary school because all my mates went to a secondary school. Yeah. And also, secondary schools were mostly uh, mixed gender. I didn't see an all-boys school in my immediate future, and um, that sounded like not much fun to me. But yeah. I, but it wasn't. I, believe me, it wasn't. Yeah, well, I, I found out because I, I, I only found out on day one there was no girls going to be there. I'm just like, hang on, what? It's all boys. Nobody told me that. Something wrong here. Has anyone <laughs> noticed? In spite of you know every attempt that I made to uh, to mess up the 11 plus I, I, I passed the 11 plus so my parents that was you know I'd, I'd made it and so I, I went to um, what was called St Augustine's in Charleston I just thought it was really going to be dead boring you know and I'd grown up with so close to my sister me and who used to we, we, you know go everywhere together we were good mates it was a little bit of a shock to the system and he was extremely Catholic and therefore it just put me off religion you know mm. but I did alright I was so hell bent already by then on being a musician 
And as it, with every passing week, my interest was in anything that wasn't connected with either football or music. And being a musician, that, that was always secondary to me, really. So my social life and everything I did was always geared around learning to play the guitar better. Um, nothing got in the way of, uh, no matter what, football, uh, the pub, anything, parties, it was everything was secondary to me, what I think was like trying to learn my craft, really. Yeah, and listening to a lot of music as well. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll talk about punk in a minute, but what was the music leading up to punk? So again, that early 70s thing, what was the music mm. that was most inspiring to you at the time? Well, glam rock, 100%. And luckily, what was the pop music of the day, literally the same as what would be played on Radio 1 now, was usually built around guitar. So my generation, it was, it was bands like The Sweet, T-Rex were my absolute first love and real major obsession. Anything going that, that was, particularly if it had guitar on it, but, you know, all those glam rock records, Susie Quattro, uh, Mud, Wizard, Slade, uh, Elton John, all of those real major glam rock stars. I'm smiling because all those were on my list of favourite bands, but my big favourite band was Shuadi Wadi. Is that right? <laughs> You'll remember them, won't you? Hey, rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but because because I'd grown up being a little bit older than you, only four years old or something, but I, I grew up loving 50s rock and roll movies. That was my main love through the early 70s. But Little Richard, Jerry Lee, Elvis, Bill Ailey, I was never going to see them because it was, a, it was a, a previous generation that had gone pretty much. And all those bands you mentioned there, they were paying homage to the 50s, as, as you know. And then suddenly, Shuadi Wadi, they looked the part as well. They looked great. Yeah. They them. Two drummers, two bassists, two guitarists, two singers. It was two bands that became one, you know that. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that's what? it happened, yeah. Really? So they're both based in there. Is it Leicester they're from? There's yeah. two rock and roll tribute bands. Dave Bartram, yeah. Fighting for the same audience all all the time. And somebody came up with the idea of merging into one big band, <laughs> which is why they had two drummers, two <laughs> bass, two guitars, two singers. <laughs> right. Shuadi Wadi. I did not yeah. know that. Right, Still I've learned something. I had, um, I've been turned down twice in recent years for uh, when I've approached people and suggested mad things. One was the um, Teletubbies. They fucked me off. And Shuadi Wadi fucked me off as well. Just a little uh, funny little film I wanted to make. The- I'll tell you about it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been turned down. I got turned down by Shuadi Wadi and the Teletubbies. Yeah. If they hear this, they might be able to hey, where out. are they now, Clint? Uh, yeah, you Look know what at I mean? you. Look yeah, at you, mate. Absolutely. Right. Let's talk about that, that magical moment. 1976 came along, uh, summer to late 1976. I was 17, living in Oldham. You were 13, 14. Yeah. Living in Withenshaw. And that's how the punk thing happened, didn't it? How did punk affect you? How did punk change your life Johnny it affected me um, in the buzzcocks I saw that I could do it also for me as a guitar player my next big jump was seeing Marquee Moon the television Oof. album cover as well I mean yeah. aside from the amazing music on it yeah. but it was a Xerox I mean back then Xerox machines were like really modern and I'd never seen a cover with a distorted picture like that because yeah. Sparrow Scratch I, I did know that um it was four lads freezing cold on the steps of uh, a statue in Piccadilly Gardens. That's right. You look at these people who are like, you know, you, you could bump into in Virgin Records or whatever, and you're thinking, not only have they actually made a record, which up until then was seemed like, you know, an impossible thing, but it's actually cooler than all these really expensive, yeah. slick things. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was so liberating, and it's from Manchester. I mean, truth be told, I was quite surprised when Nevermind the Bollocks came out because it sounded so layered and I wasn't expecting it to sound quite... I mean, it's an amazing record, but I really loved Spiral Scratch. I thought it was great. And then the next big thing for me was uh, Shot by Both Sides by yeah. Magazine. So that was the main message that it sent out to me, like, whoa, hang on a minute, 
Mancunians can do it. And then the buzzcocks running with the ball like that. And they were on the top of the pops all the time. And, and I was just like, oh, okay, they're on a major label. So Mancunian bands can do it. That yeah. was just amazing for me. What about your first gig? What was the first show that you ever went to? Can you remember? The first show that I ever went to, I only just I worked at some of this stuff out when I did my autobiography. It was slaughtering the dogs at the Widdenshaw Forum. And I was 12 and I went on my own. And it absolutely kicked off. <laughs> kicked off after probably the third song. I mean, it was like so on the cards because their gigs were quite violent, you know. The actual real slaughtering the dogs were a bunch of lads from South Manchester, from Widdenshaw, and they were like the local heroes. And they, they played glam rock. But because they were young, they did it in this really youthful and irreverent way. And they were really on the cusp of, of punk. And what they did then when punk happened, understandably, they they basically sped a lot of the songs up and just said, one, two, three, four, before them. They were housing estate glamour. And it was quite a quite an interesting thing. So that was my first ever show. Obviously, you lived in the shadow of, or you grew up in the shadow of the Apollo, didn't you? And during the punk era, and you started going to gigs uh, illicitly because you're probably underage or couldn't afford it. Yeah. But we used to uh, have a secret way of in, <laughs> didn't you? Which you probably, do you ever still use that method now? Well, there's a, a drain pipe uh, outside the girls' toilets of the of the Apollo, and um, so what we used to do, we used to, uh, you'd see a few girls. So we'd me and my mate would ask um, ask one of the girls, like, listen, you know, will you open the window, that little window up there? And then when the support band had come on, one of us, usually me, would have to climb up this uh, this drain pipe and squeeze into this tiny, tiny little window. And as you were getting in. There'd be usually quite a few shrieks and screams from, like, <laughs> from coming inside the girls' toilets. And then you just leg it and then you you run all down this labyrinth of stairs, which is in the backstage area, yeah. right? I now have discovered. And then um, to this doorway and then you'd open the doors and your, your mates would pile in. Yeah. But I, you know what, though? Have you seen how high that window is? I've seen it, yeah, because you told me about it before. It's, uh, it's well high. Shocking, shocking. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but the thing, you know, the things you do for... Rock and roll. Yeah. But what, you know, what used to happen was that, um, you know, a bunch of lads usually used to congregate behind those doors at the Apollo and definitely at the Free Trade Hall. And um, no matter who was on, I'm not alone in saying this, I used to go and see, and whoever was on, I would go and see, it didn't matter. I saw so many bands that I just, you know, don't care for. Yeah. And loads of other other lads did the same. We always got in one way or other by hook or by crook. I never yeah. walked away from one of those gigs never getting in and I saw so many bad groups. Let's talk about a chap that a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with, uh, a bloke that I knew. A man who you met before the Smiths even um, when you were selling clothes at X Clothes. Talk about Joe Moss. It's a chap that the man in the street probably won't be generally aware of. But yeah, uh, tell us about Joe Moss. Well, Joe was a very interesting character. He'd made a, a life for himself during the 60s in and around Manchester. Um, it started off with a stall on um, on some market that used to be the underground market of uh, Market Street. Yeah. It started off like making hippie sandals and stuff like that. And then that expanded. He was involved in the eighth day, which is still there now. And then people from the 70s will know of his shops, which were called Crazy Face. But anyway, when I met him, uh, I was 17 and I was working on chapel walks in town. He had crazy face shop next door and um i used to nip in there for a sig and the girls in there were they were great they were good fun and they were they were good to hang out with so i used to go in there and um 
the shop had what now you, you call retro culture. So the shop had loads of old pictures of James Dean and Marlon Brando and Marilyn Monroe and all these old 60s movie stars, which then was really unusual and it was super hip because CDs weren't even out then. I used to go into the shop and I'd yet to meet Joe. He's hanging out with the girls in there. I'd say, Why, what's this music? John Lee Hooker and Solomon Burke and all of this, Van Morrison. And oh, Joe makes us listen to it. So I'd, I was intrigued to meet this guy, Joe. Anyway, I walked in there one day on my lunch break and um, I saw this guy. He would have been in his mid to late 30s, which to me was ancient. <laughs> and um, I stuck my hand out and said, oh, you know, my name's Johnny. I'm a frustrated musician. From that moment on, he became like a sort of father figure to me, a mentor. And I was just like, I was like a sponge, just kind of crazy. I just soaked all of this stuff up. Mm. And he was my new best mate. It was unusual. Over the years, he encouraged me to form the Smiths. So it was me and Angie, my, my now wife, my girlfriend, and Joe. That's how the Smiths died. Right. Joe was my manager right up, up until the night he died, which is in 2015, after our very last gig of the tour. Wow. Yeah, he, he hung on there to the very last gig. Yeah. So my new studio is called the Crazy Face Factory in tribute to Joe. You knocking on Morris's door, it was Joe Moss that persuaded you to give that a shot, wasn't it? Yeah. I was just a kid with a guitar. I didn't have a band, but he knew that I was going to form one. I mean, I'd been in a bunch by then. He and I were very into... When I met him, I was, I was very, very into the Brill Building New York songwriter scene of the mid 60s you know when you were talking earlier about liking rock and roll music going back retrospectively and getting into jerry lee and all of that i did that in my way going back to the girl groups the reason i got into the girl groups was because of my heroes because of patty smith um she used to do ronette songs and the dolls used to do shangri-la songs and that's my that was my introduction to to that music and then much probably like yourself with 50s music when i heard that music it sounded more radical than the music that was being made for my generation. At that time in 1982, the South Bank show uh, was one of the few places where you would see music on the television. And um, there'd been a documentary about the songwriting duo of Libra and Stoller. And um, Joe, anyway, actually sat me down and said, watch this. And he put the VHS in. And I was watching this thing. I was absolutely fascinated. I like Libra and Stoller. But then about midway through it, or early on in it, whatever, he said to me, well, watch this bit, watch this bit. I think it's Jerry Lieber, I think, says to the camera, he says, well, I needed someone to write words. I didn't know anyone, but I'd been told that there was this kid in the neighbourhood who wrote words. So I just went and knocked on his door. And then I realised that because I'd been talking to Joe about, I'd mentioned that I'd heard of this guy Morrissey from years before, who'd been in punk bands. And it had come up in conversation, well, I don't know who this guy is, and... Joe was just planting that seed in my mind. That's what you should do. Just go and knock on the door, you know. Mm. Lieber and Stoller did it. So I went back to my mum's place in Widdenshaw and I tracked down a lad who lived nearby who uh, I knew knew Morrissey and said, have you got his address? First off, I asked someone else, did they have Morrissey's number? And they said, no. This guy, Phil Fletcher, said, no, but Steve Promfrit will. So then I had to get Pommy's address, go out of Pommy's, and knock on his door. Did a lot of knocking on doors when I was young. <laughs> and um, I remember it so well because it was a, it was a sunny day in Manchester. So you, we all remember those days, right? Beautiful scorching day. And then Steve Pomfret opened the door, asked him, did he have Morrissey's address? And he hadn't seen Morrissey for years. And he went, oh, yeah, hold on a minute. I think I've got it somewhere, yeah. 
So he went off down the hall, I've stood at the front door, and he came back and handed me the piece of paper. He wrote the address down, King's Road in Stratford. And then I walked down the little garden path and I stood outside on the pavement, this boiling hot sun, and I looked at this white, whited out piece of paper. I can remember it like it was yesterday. And I had one of those moments. I've been very fortunate to have a few of them in my life where I was like, this is a moment. You know, I, I kind of am a little bit partial to that mystical stuff anyway. I don't know whether you've ever noticed, Clint. <laughs> but, but you know, I'm pretty cosmic sometimes. But I, it really felt like something was going to happen when I was holding that bit of paper. It felt like a magical object. Anyway, I thought, right, I'll just go and knock on his door. So but I bottled it at the last minute and I said, Pommy, you've got to come with us. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've heard he's a bit unusual <laughs> and I can't just go and knock on his door I knocked on two doors already today so um, so we got on the bus and went to Stratford and uh, walked up Morrissey's tiny little garden path and knocked on the door and his sister came and opened the door and said who are you so I said well Stephen in and then he, he came down and then um, he let on to Pommy and then I just went <laughs> band amazing guitarist and um, <laughs> and amazingly he just said, come in. And then we went into his room and Pommy sat in the corner, absolutely still, but beaming, you know, watching something very significant. And it did feel very significant. And um, a lot of things that happened in my life felt very significant at that time, as I said, and, and they turned out to be significant, you know. Mm. It must have been very, very peculiar, weird for him because he was just going about his day and then this little hyperactive tornado, albeit who knew what he was talking about, completely out of nowhere. You know, he had no warning. <laughs> I'm in his bedroom and I'm playing his 45s, this complete stranger, albeit very uh, stylish one. <laughs> anyway, you know, I could go on, but, uh, and someone could make a film of it. Yeah, but I was going to say, have you seen the film? I've yet? not, you know what? Because that scene there, you know, it's just, I know you've not seen the film, but that scene, as you described, is replicated really well in the film, I think. Oh, good. It's a good film. We're talking about the film England is Mine that came out uh, a couple of years ago. What was, I mean, the Smith success came, as we all know, we don't have to go through that in fine detail at Thank this point. Thank God. But um, what was the the moment where you thought everything I ever dreamed of as a kid in Ardwick and in Withenshaw, it's all, that's it, it's all happened, I've got it all. What was that, was that moment? Yeah. Was it Top of the Pops? No, it was, it was before that. It was standing on um, what used to be the approach of Piccadilly train station. What's the back, now the back of Piccadilly train station, that used to be the front, that thing that used to slope. Yeah. And um, I went to pick up a box of 25 copies of Hand in Glove, which was our first seven-inch single on Rough Trade, one Monday morning. From the post office from parcel the, collection yeah, place. Yeah, from the parcel yeah, collection place, yeah. Because I was besotted from being a child with making a, a 45, 45 RPM single. Mm -hmm. When Morrissey and my first proper get-together, after I knocked on his door, the very next time we went which was a week later for our first songwriting session I uh, had a little bit of a, a, a rant and I said right what we should do is we should have a our first single should have a navy blue label with it silver writing in a picture sleeve should be on rough trade and then we should write a song for Sandy Shaw and the first album should I mean this mad stuff all <laughs> happened and then our first album should just be eponymous it should just be called The Smiths and yep. I just I had this long list, like a checklist, of what we should do. And it completely... You ask Morrissey this, he'll tell you, everything happened. I mean, it was so fanciful. It was like some weird kind of... 
divining prediction, but it did happen, you know, yeah. because I thought about my band having a, whoever it was going to be, I just wanted this navy blue label with silver writing on it. And I, subconsciously it was because of the, the Rolling Stones Decca records yeah. that I'd grown up loving as a kid. And um, anyway, so when I got hand in glove and I got the box and I stood up outside Piccadilly Station one Monday morning and I, I opened it and pulled this record out, it was almost too much to take in really. And then the Top of the Pops thing was just, that was a real sensory overload, you know. We booked a gig at the Hacienda that night as well and we'd sort of exploded on the scene and everything was all about us and this charming man and everyone was like talking about us and suddenly everyone was dressing like us and all of this and because Top of the Pops was live, we'd done it and it seemed like every kid in the country had tuned in to see it and was suddenly at that moment then raiding their mothers and sisters' bedrooms for blouses and (laughs) beads and flowers and all of that. And um, we then got on the train to go back to play the Hacienda that night. So our working day wasn't done. And we'd been aware that we'd like set off this bomb. I mean, it sounds a little immodest, but it, I was aware that I thought no one's seen anything like that on the Absolutely. telly. Absolutely. Because at the same time, time every, a lot of people started celebrating it from second one, but a lot of people were looking at the telly shouting, what is he doing with fucking flowers, weren't they? Yeah. You know what I mean? There's like, there a bit of rage as well from certain quarters. Well, it was great. I love that we would, that we would polarise people all the way through the career and we got more and more polarising, but... Um, Still do, you know, but yeah. but uh, <laughs> yeah, especially you, mate. <laughs> yeah, we had to get the train back. So the size of that event for all of us, it would have been enough and massive and to get our heads round if we'd recorded it as you usually did on a Wednesday, and then we all got together in my flat or whatever, or in our houses with our families and watched ourselves on the TV. That would have been a big deal as it was, but it wasn't. We did it, and then we were all on the train going back to play the hacienda. And when we got off the train at Piccadilly, Mike Pickering and Rob Gretton, who was New Order's manager, came to meet us and they were white. The pair of them were absolutely ghostly white and they went, there's 2,000 people in there and there's 1,000 people on the street on Whitworth Street. Don't know how you're gonna, we're going to get you in. It was total mania. And then we drove to the Hacienda and I remember being lifted, Rob Gretton lifted me out through the crowd and he had me almost a book. I mean, I was only... Seven Stone 2 anyway, but, uh, which was Andy, but he lifted me into the venue and uh, we went and we played this gig. And when we played that show, which was Total Mania, there was a kid about two feet away from me for the whole show with his shirt off and he was just trying to get at me f- for the gig. It's on video somewhere and he's trying to, trying to get me all the way through the show and he's trying to attract my attention. I thought, God, this is full on, this kid. And then I only realised, I don't know, 40 minutes into the show, that it was a kid I went to school with. Right. And I thought, this is mad. And that, that image there, wanting to grab bits of you, for three years, that was what it was like. The Smiths became one of the most influential British bands of all time, as we know. It was a proper hurricane of madness for a few years. 1987, you opted out. You decided you had enough. Understandably, at the time, you were pretty much making all the management decisions. Everything yeah. to do with the running of the business was being put on you, on your shoulders. You were 23. Yeah. Still young bloke, really, and... And that's yeah. what it, it drove you to make the decision to get out of there, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, th- you know, the th- obviously it could be a very, very complicated answer, but the thing is that my role when, I f- when we formed was that, you know, I went and got everybody. So the, the other members of the band didn't know each other, for example. It wasn't like we were a bunch of mates. So none of us knew each other, but I got Marza and then I got Mike 
and then I got Andy. So I, in a way, I was like the spoke in the middle of a wheel, really. And then I got our rehearsal room. This isn't like a list of my achievements. It's just my role in the band. I got the rehearsal room and I got Joe, the manager. And then I went to Rough Trade to, uh, to get the deal. It was just the way I was, you know, I don't begrudge anyone that. I was very resourceful and I had a lot of passion and I had a vision and, and I formed the group. So my role was to get the rehearsal rooms, get the studio, get the label, get the manager, all of that. And that role stayed and stayed, but we got huge and we, you know, we're playing to thousands of people in America and doing these, what they call sheds, these outdoor arenas and stuff and tours without a manager. Because, you know, Joe had left, been forced out, actually. And then several other managers had been forced out, as everybody knows. So if you fast forward then, after having done Meet Is Murder, which was a number one album, straight in number one, The Queen Is Dead, which is considered as, you know, one of the most important albums and which really nearly killed all of us making it, particularly me, then Strange Ways and then the other, all the singles and all of that, 70-odd songs. And we became this huge group. My role was expected or it was put back on me that, that my role would be as it used to be. Now, running around getting rehearsal rooms in Manchester and blagging studio time is one thing, but talking to lawyers about leaving record companies and talking to accountants about tax laws that I didn't understand and dealing with drug busts and dealing with agents and huge American tours, that was beyond my remit. At the time, it was a very, uh, I felt incredibly, uh, well, I was heartbroken, really because it, I was put in that position and I had no choice but other than to leave my band, you know, because yeah. I wasn't prepared to do that. You know, I'd have not been put in that position, who knows, really. But I'm very, um, you know, as you know, I was, I was quite a philosophical person and, and, you know, really, it was never really in my stars to... I didn't ever see myself being in REM or U2 or, or Coldplay or one of those bands who've been around for 40 years. What I've ended up doing is exactly really what I imagined I would do. Because in hindsight, that period where it probably, I'm, I'm guessing that would have been the low point of your working life, wasn't it, right after the Smiths? But ultimately, and probably in a short space of time, it seems like you must have felt liberated to be free of that and to be able to just get on and do what the hell you wanted. As weird as it was, you know, as heartbreaking as it was, it, it was, it was weird because it was like a grief and simultaneously complete liberation. And joining the there, because I'd already been really close with Matt Johnson and joining that band was a real refuge for me and then, you know, gave me plenty to think about and I was in there for four years, nearly five years. And then also what happened then to bring it back to Manchester was within months afterwards, Madchester happened. Yeah, I was only 24, so this insane cultural explosion is really exciting and I think very valid and significant revolution happened in my own town, yeah. you know, at the age of 25. So that took my mind off things, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. Because <laughs> this is still John, Johnny Meyer, the party animal, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, I mean, and that's, that's around the time we met, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, about 88, yeah. 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 You know, everyone wanted to be Mancunian. And Electronic, you know, me and Bernard Sumner had just formed. So he was doing New Order and Electronic, and I was doing the other and Electronic. And we were using Electronic as a refuge from our other bands, as well as being... The most pioneering, I thought, electronic musician of his generation yeah. at that time. With New Order. Yeah, with New yeah. Order, yeah. He happened, to, uh, he happened to be one of the owners of the Hacienda. So that was a very, very creative and interesting and wild time. Let's talk about the lifestyle. I mentioned earlier at the beginning about you've got a very 
healthy lifestyle now the way you eat you're vegan yeah. you, you run 20 miles a day or whatever uh, you don't drink you don't do the drugs or anything was there a turning point was there one moment where that happened or was it just uh, over a series of uh, well, months, I, years? well I got into this sort of ex, you know kind of running and uh, all of that that was a moment that was when I went in the early 2000s uh, I went out with Angie my wife to Morocco to sort of get healthy because Kirsten McCall had died not long before and that really had an effect on me and then um, and, and I got ill actually I got pneumonia uh, got pleurisy uh, rather I was feeling rough so I went out to to Morocco and anyway I just I, so I did have a moment where I was sat on the top of what's called a Riyadh and um, and I looked out over the the desert really and it was all pink as the sun was going down I could see the silhouettes of these palm trees and I'd always liked running and in the 90s, I sort of got into sort of a bit of fitness and I thought, oh, you know what, I really just feel like running out there, you know. And I got out and just started running, no music or no nothing, you know, just got my trainers on and just went for it. Because of what I do being a musician, you know, sometimes with some journalists, uh, it's nearly always journalists, when they ask me about not drinking, there's this sort of uh, assumption that it's abstinence or that I have this... Uh, you know, my rock and roll hell years. Did all of that so young because, you know, as you pointed out, I was so young when the Smiths took off. So, you know, I became a successful musician at 19, 20, and more importantly, doing something I loved. That, to me, is success. Yeah. But I had all the trappings of success. And, and you know what? It was always on my to-do list, all of that stuff. Well, first off, have a great band, you know, take loads of drugs, uh, have the roadies all living, sleeping on your floor while you make a record, tick. Always wear sunglasses indoors, tick. Crash a car, tick, etc., etc., and I got to tick all of those things off and still be here. So then, when I got in my late thirties or something, my mid thirties, I just didn't want to be an old cliche. It's about what would what makes me a better musician, keeps my attitude fresh, keeps my energy up, and makes me want to work. Yeah. So if partying would make me a better musician, I'd do it. I've got no morality or any judgment about it. Yeah. But it doesn't, you know, and I sort of, I took to clean living like I, I took to dirty living. <laughs> you did some really cool stuff with Maxine Pete recently, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, brilliant again. Yeah, well, the thing with Maxine was that it came, all my ideas are really always, uh, they're never put together by a manager or by um, a record company. They're all these notions that I have. And um, what happened with Maxine was that I wanted to visualise or envisage a different kind of guitar music that I could do alongside Call the Comet and that isn't about verses and choruses. So I had the idea, this feeling, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that'd be, that'd be pretty good. And it kept coming back to me and then once I decided I wanted to do it, within seconds, I just imagined Maxine Pete talking over it because I'm a massive fan, who isn't? Yeah. We got to meet, I didn't know her at that point, we got to meet and we just met up and had lunch and we were chatting about this, that and the other, all kinds of stuff. And then at the end of this, meeting i said oh, i've got a bit of a con i've got a confession you know to make i've got this idea about in the future about doing this projects yeah and i'd love for you to do a track with me you know and she was on board she was like straight away like and then this friendship developed and um i just got her to say some stuff into her phone one of which was this reading this blog the priest about a homeless guy and then i got it in the studio and i, I just had maxine's voice coming through the speakers i tell you that's a great experience yeah because she's so expressive and uh, distinctive sounding. And um, yeah, and then we made the, this little film that's on YouTube for anyone who's interested with, uh, with Molly Windsor as uh, 
acting as this homeless girl. Let me talk about the collaboration you did with Noel, because you did a track with Noel on uh, his recent album, yeah. If Love Is The Law. And that, not yeah. just the guitar on it, the, the, the harmonica on that, it's like, it makes the ears go up on me, my arms like that. Yeah, well, I've got to, I mean, I played it, but Noel had the vision for that. That was that was his thing, bring your harmonica down for this, and then... You Did know, you say, how is your harmonica? Is you I, do one no, I no. didn't, but I'm going to from now on, every time I hear that, I want to think of you. <laughs> Can you remember the last time I told you a joke? It's a, I, didn't, I didn't make this joke up, it's out there. Was but, it the Marmite one? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. you, should, should you didn't now. invent that. I, don't. I didn't invent it, no, I'm just saying, I talk, but when I told you, I don't think you knew it. No, I think that was the first time I yeah. ever heard it, and I've heard it a lot since then. Yeah. You asked well, me, the, you, you, you set it up, and I'll give should you... Should do that, yeah. What does Morrissey have on his toast? I don't know, but Johnny Marmite, see? It's good, it works it? every time. They're yeah. laughing out there in podcast land, I tell you. I want to talk about Manchester, that's yeah. the main reason we're here now, so yeah. talk about the spirit of Manchester. What do you love about the spirit of this beautiful city? Well, I think it's not for nothing that this city is uh, built on immigration, I think. I really don't think you can talk about Manchester without referring to the Jewish community that came over from Eastern Europe and the Irish community and West Indian community because those working class communities that came over and the Indian community with the Industrial Revolution, they they needed entertainment. So, you know, there's also a reason why Manchester had more clubs per capita in this city than any other city in Europe in the 60s. So... Maybe because, you know, I come from an Irish family, it always felt like a very welcoming, diverse place to me. So the fact that a lot of comedians came out of here, and we all know tons of musicians and some great actors and so on and so on, is really born out of the working classes coming here for the Industrial Revolution, I think, and needing to entertain and be entertained. And that's really ingrained in us. The Industrial Revolution was uh, was a, a seriously historically significant. Pretty it, cool, wasn't it? It was right where <laughs> we are, you know. Yeah, yeah pretty cool. It's a good way of putting it. Absolutely. If I was to say to you, who are your favourite humans of Manchester of all time, <laughs> past or present? Give us two or three names. My mind goes to Bernard Sumner and Steve Morris, I think. But uh, Bernard, he'd be right up there, really, because... Um, he was a guitar player in Joy Division and the guitar playing's pretty great on those records. You know, he's led New Order. He's a great guy. And, you know, we, all the members of New Order, without them, no Hacienda. And that was a such an important place for everybody, really. Bernard would, he would take those plaudits very uh, graciously, but then he would point out that, well... Yeah, it's very nice, Johnny, but actually I'm from Salford. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm from right. Salford. You know what those people from Salford are like? Yeah, Uckie's oh, the same, isn't he? Don't make the mistake of giving them the, 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 <laughs> the, the uh, paying them the compliment of calling them Mancunians, but Bernard would be one. And Albert Finney, I think. Again, Salford. Yeah. Joe Moss has got to be on your list. Uh, Joe Moss would be the king of it, yeah. actually, because uh, of all the things we talked about. And he's, he's a great example of um, Mancunian bohemianism. He was the walking embodiment of rock and roll culture from the 50s through the 60s and the hippie movement and the, the mod movement and the hippie movement and the northern soul movement and the whole pop culture from the 50s up until, well, you know, 2015. There's a word for it, isn't it? It was a beatnik, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. yeah was as, a, as we remember that. Uh, Manchester was, beatniks were very, very important in Manchester. Yeah. Before you go, Johnny, describe Manchester in three words. Industrial musical revolutionaries. Fantastic. Johnny Marr, thank you for being a human of excess Manchester. Thanks for including me in that list, Clint.
That was Johnny Marr. Make sure you join us next week, where I'll be speaking to photographer and graphic designer, most noted for working with bands like Oasis and The Verve, Brian Cannon. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester if you can. Rate us. Feel free to leave us a comment. We'll love getting your feedback. And please share the podcast if you like it. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.